Okay. Are you ready for the word this morning? Turn to Galatians chapter 2, 17 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, 17 through 21. Leon Morris is one of the leading New Testament scholars of his generation. His generation spans from 1950 all the way to present day. He's written some of the definitive works on the work of Christ. One of them's called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. The other's called The Atonement. Almost every evangelical seminary uses these texts in some fashion or some form in at least one of their classes. He has produced some of the top-ranking commentaries on Matthew, Luke, John, Romans, and Galatians that almost every pastor has in their library. This is what he wrote about the passage we're going to look at today. This is, for me, personally, the most moving text in the whole of Scripture. The passage we are about to look at is supposed to move you. Now, for some of you, I know this scares the daylights out of you. <laughs> move me? Man, I never let my emotions get the best of me. I never want to show my emotions. That's the slippery slope of emotionalism, you're thinking. I mean, you're thinking like this. Emotionalism, it's that next step to all of a sudden swaying and raising your hands. Right? Now, I want to make the, the record clear. Presbyterians, we do raise our hands. Swaying and raising our hands, that's just a little over the top. Right? But emotionalism can move in that direction. It also can mean we can weep uncontrollably. You're scared. You're, all of a sudden, we'll start jumping around like human pogo sticks. Right? Have praise and rock bands, and we have worship leaders that smile and close their eyes and always say, I just want to. I just want to. I know you're scared of that. I know that's you. Now, this is what this text says to you, those of you that are scared to be moved by this text. You better be moved by God. You were made to be moved by God. In fact, being moved by God is being truly human. You were made to be moved by God. Now, for others of you, you hear being moved by God, and you're like, this frees you, right? You say, move me. I've longed to be moved by God. I've longed to have theology, the Bible, Bible studies, small groups, community, fellowship, preaching. I've longed for God to move me. I've longed for Him to reach and touch the deepest innermost parts of my soul. I long for that. I long to be moved by God, not just get more data about him. Oh, I want that. This text says to you, God is always moving. If Isaiah was here, he'd say God is holy. If Piper were here, he'd say God is infinitely worthy. And what that means is, is that God in his wonder is always infinitely blinding and beautiful. God in his work is infinitely breathtaking and life-giving. God is always moving. So welcome to the one of the most moving passages in all the Bible. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. 
Galatians 2, 17 through 21. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ has died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Thanks Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we worship and adore you as the author of this word the inspirer of this word, the breathing out of God in written form. And so we ask you and invite you to take your word and send it into our hearts. We ask you to do what Jesus was resurrected to do, to unleash heaven upon your people, to unleash the Spirit upon your church to open our eyes to the wonder of Jesus, open our hearts to the work of Jesus. And in the process, Lord, as the great saints of old said, the explosive power of a new affection arise in our soul and drive out all competitors. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s definitively changed the world. Definitively. In fact, Martin Luther shows up as one of the most influential people in the history of the world. Every cycle in Time magazine, when they do their top lists, he's always on there. And he's always on there because this Reformation in the 1500s left a definitive mark that forever changed the world. Not just the church, the whole world. It's echoes, it's fingerprints, it's demographic, it's fruit, is felt today everywhere. Now, if the Reformation was a firestorm, then Martin Luther lit the first match. And he did so when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, his very first thesis of his 95 theses went like this. Are you ready? Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Did you catch that? The whole life of believers should be repentance. Luther's notion that the Christian life is a lifestyle of regular repentance in part came from Genesis 2.17. In part of his study of the scriptures. Galatians, again, for Luther and for the Reformation is one of the key books, the most significant books that was used in these leaders of the Reformation's life. Romans was number one. Everybody acknowledges that. 
Now, here's what happens. Look in 2.17. Here's what, what he found and what Paul's arguing for. The first is seeking to be justified in Christ. First part of verse 17. The second is while you're doing that, at the same time, you're found to be a sinner. This is the basis for his lifestyle of repentance, okay? So according to Luther and according to Paul, the Christian creature is a justified sinner. Now, this is incredible because what they're saying is that the Christian creature is at the same time, simultaneously, two realities. On the one hand, the Christian creature is needy and weak and imperfect and deeply flawed and messed up and sinful. On the other hand, the Christian creature is accepted as righteous beyond his or her wildest dreams. Warmly welcomed in by God. Lovingly made friends with God. Now what I just said for some of you bothers you. I know that. It has to be. Statistics say it does. When you hear that we are a Christian simultaneously sinful and justified that scares you. You hear Jesus is made a servant of sin. You hear, as the text literally means, Jesus is made a promoter of sin. You know, like a promoter of anything. Promoting it, encouraging it. Blowing the fire of it. You think this is cheap grace. Okay? Now, look at the third part of verse 17. This is what Paul was being accused of. So I want you to see that Paul's being accused of this. If I endeavor to be justified in Christ and I'm found to be a sinner, is Christ then a servant of sin? This is what Paul's being accused of. His gospel, his Galatian gospel, is being accused of cheap grace. Okay? Now, the Greek grammar in this text in verse 17 makes clear what Paul's response is to this charge. It's what's called a second-class condition clause. You like that? Here's how it goes. You look, ready? Look at verse 17. If seeking to be justified in Christ, true. And if found to be a sinner at the same time, true. Then Christ is a servant of sin, false. That's what the grammar says. That's what Paul is doing in this text. Now, in case we missed it, he goes in and says flat out, certainly not right after it, right? He answers it. But even the grammar's telling us, true, true, false. Certainly not. Me, genoito, the strongest rejection, the strongest denial in the Greek language Paul uses. It's impossible for the gospel that I'm talking about to make Jesus a promoter of sin. It's absolutely impossible. It's like cows flying. Now, Paul keeps going with his response to the charge of cheap grace in verse 18, because look what he does. Look at the beginning of verse 18. What do you see? For, he's continuing his argument. For, let's read it together. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's response is this. If, if you rebuild a work of the law salvation that a Christ work salvation tore down, if, if I rebuild in my life an achievement salvation 
after already trusting and believing in a grace salvation, Paul is saying, you're sinning. Do you see that? Now, what Paul does in one stroke of the pen is absolutely phenomenal. In one stroke of the pen, he opens a whole new world of sinning to the Galatians. In one stroke of the pen, he adds a whole new chapter to the big book of sin. Do you know what he added? Self-righteousness. Here's how one PCA pastor puts it. So this is stolen from him. This is the way how he puts it. The religious or the self-righteous only repent of sins. In other words, the religious or the self-righteous only repent of sins. They only repent of the bad stuff that everybody knows about. The bad stuff that we all say is bad. The bad stuff that we do. But the self-righteous or the religious only repents of that stuff. And then this guy goes on to say the irreligious, those that are self-pleasing, their, their salvation is pleasing themselves. If the church was to get a hold of that, they'd say that's the cheap grace version. All right? Living for yourself, pleasing yourself. Uh, God loves me and forgives me. It's his job. So pass the lying, please. Pass the pornography, please. It's that kind of thought, okay? The irreligious don't repent at all, this person's saying. So the religious only repent of sins, the irreligious don't repent at all. And this is what he says. The Christian, however, repents both of their sins and of their self-righteousness. That's a Christian. All right, so self-righteousness is Paul's new chapter in the big book of sin. So the issue is, what is self-righteousness? Well, the answer is given in verse 18, and the answer is given in the whole book of Galatians. Here it is. Self-righteousness is trying to be your own savior with your own good stuff. Self-righteousness is trying to be your own savior with your own good stuff. And your good stuff can be any kind of good stuff. It can be church stuff. That could be your stuff. It could be moral stuff. It could be career stuff. It could be wife stuff. It could be parenting stuff. It can be a lot of good stuff. The point is, it's not bad stuff. The point is, it's good stuff. And we're looking to good stuff to be our savior, to be our righteousness. And what Paul does in this text is he shows the Galatians there's more to sinning than bad stuff. There's good stuff sinning called self-righteousness. Now, let's go back to Martin Luther's number one thesis of the 95 Theses that started the greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the church. You ready? Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So the question for you and I, the question for the readers of Galatians is this. Do you regularly repent of your self-righteousness? That's the question. Here's an example of self-righteousness, and this was stolen too. It goes like this. You ready? Here's some examples, just so we kind of see it's a little more than maybe we thought of. Here it is. Here's example number one. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated. Because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that salvation, threats to that self-identity must be destroyed at all costs. Do you see that in you? 
I see that in me. Do you see that in you? That's self-righteousness. Here's another example. Well, well, let's first, let's listen to the gospel way first. Here's what the gospel says. This is what's different. This is what the gospel does to you when you get the gospel. When I'm criticized, I struggle. But it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. Or for so-and-so to think of myself as a good person. See the difference? My salvation and my identity is not built on my performance or my record, but on the love of God in Christ. See the contrast? Let's do another one just to see if we get it here. Here's another example. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or I'm angry at myself. And the reason is this, because I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. See that? Now listen to the way of the gospel. Here it is. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. So now, while I am... God is allowing this trial in my life. He is always working his fatherly love and fatherly care in the midst of it. Okay? That's the difference. Richard Loveless is a well-known church history professor. This is what he says. He's known. He's up in the Northeast. He goes to Gordon Seminary. He's taught there for a long time. He is significant. He's written significant works. He's an Edwards scholar. He studies specifically the spiritual condition of the church throughout its 2,000-year history. So he is really specializing in the pulse or the health of the church. That's his specialization in church history. So this is what he says. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Only a fraction, he's saying. He says, most have only a theoretical commitment to justification. What one of the most uh, well-known, one of the most respected in his particular field is saying is that most of the church is filled with self-righteous people. That's you and me. Isn't that unbelievable? A friend of mine was telling me recently, he said, Jeff... This generation needs to realize it has inherited a self-righteous church. What scholars are saying and what church leaders are saying today is this. Listen very carefully. They're saying that the church today is just like the church in the 1500s before the Reformation. Now, don't miss the excitement in that. The church is positioned just like it was before God unleashed justification on the church. Okay? Now, eight years ago, I was invited to speak at Truett. I was invited to speak at a seminary class. And this one particular professor, he teaches a uh, class on Arminianism and Calvinism. And it, those of you who don't know what that means, it's basically kind of two ways of looking at the Bible. It's two ways of looking at Jesus' salvation. It's two ways of looking at grace salvation. Two different lenses, two different systems, two different ways of looking at it. 
Now, what he said is this. He approached Peter, my brother and I, Pete and I, and he says, listen, I've looked all over Waco. I've turned over every rock, and I cannot find a living, breathing Calvinist. You're it, he said. Will you come and speak to my class? Now, Pete and I knew that this was going to be the first time that every single person in that class was going to see a living, breathing Calvinist. So we knew that our first words were very, very important. The first things that came out of our mouths were of utmost significance. The way we handled ourselves, the way we, our hair looked, the way our clothes looked, the way we walked in, because we were representing church history right now. So when I walked in, and I looked out at all these students, I looked them in the eye, and I said, Boo! <laughs> And they all jumped just like you. (laughs) And they laughed their heads off. Every year, I have now gone there for the last eight years to teach this class. Every year, I'm finding more and more students that I've had no contact with, this church has had no contact with, believing holding on to the grace salvation of the likes of a Luther or a Calvin. This last time when I went there, over half the class was nodding their head at what I was saying. Brothers and sisters, can you smell it? A reformation is coming. Now here's the challenge for those of us that are in the heritage of the Reformation. For the Galatian gospel to run through the church in the United States today, which it is, why do you think there are these groups called the Young Calvinists? Why do you think these groups called the Emergence are rising? Folks are starting to wrestle with some things. For the church of the heritage of the Reformation, for us to be a part of the recovery of the gospel. We've got to. We've got to see for ourselves like Paul in Galatians, and we've got to see for ourselves like Jesus in the gospels. This is what we've got to see, that the deadliest sin in the church today is not gluttony, drunkenness, laziness, prostitution. Is not TV, Xbox 360, texting and Facebook. It is not a loose tongue. It's not lying. It's not sexual immorality, divorce, and homosexuality. The deadliest sin in the church of every generation, according to the authority of Paul in Galatians and Jesus in the Gospels, is self-righteousness. Trusting, putting ourselves as our own Savior with our good stuff. Okay? So here's the issue. This is what Galatians is after. So what do we do? What do we do? We want to be regular repenters. We want to be that way. So what do we do? Well, this is the driving application of the whole book of Galatians. Are you ready? It's the driving application for Christians everywhere. The driving application is to be a regular repenter, both of your bad stuff and of your good stuff. That's the driving application of this whole book. So in other words, for Peter and Barnabas and for the 
the Jewish Christians in Antioch, verses 11 through 14, what was the driving application for them? They had to repent of their self-righteousness. And their self-righteousness showed itself in racism. It showed itself in superiority. It showed itself in this abuse of others, mistreating others. And Paul was calling them to repent. The Jerusalem follow-up team, which is behind the theology and the behavior that's running through this text, they had to repent. That's his point in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a sinner. He's directly targeting the Jerusalem folks. Repent is what he's saying to them. And then you got the churches of Galatia. They had to repent of their self-righteousness. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians, you're putting yourself, trusting yourself as your own Savior with your good stuff. All right? So what do we do? We regularly repent of our bad stuff and our good stuff. And so the question is what? How? How do we regularly repent? How do you do that? And the answer is in verses 17 or actually 19 through 21. That's the answer. 19 through 21 tell us how to repent. Look at verse 19. Do you see the four again? He's continuing his train of thought. So you know that's where you're with me. He's now going to tell us how we repent. Now what we're going to do, verses 19 through 21, is Paul's response to the self-righteousness of the Jerusalem follow-up team. Remember, 18, he just said, you prove yourself to be a sinner if you try to trust in the law, in works salvation, to be okay. If you make works of the law your righteousness, if you rebuild that after you began by trusting in grace salvation, you've just shown yourself to be a sinner, here's his response to that. His response is 19 through 21. We're going to end by looking at one angle of his response today. Next week, we'll pick up the other angle of his response. Okay? So we're going to end with one angle of his response to the self-righteousness to really look at how do you repent? How do you do this? So how, what's Paul's answer? Look at verse 20. Here it is. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you repent? The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loves the world and he gave himself for the world, the Bible says. Jesus loves sinners and gave himself for sinners, the Bible says. Jesus loves me and gave himself for me, Paul says. 
while being deeply moved. In World War II, there was a Jewish family named the Rosenbergs. They were confined to a concentration camp during the course of the war, and that's a sterilized term for death camp. At this death camp, prisoners could only escape the gas ovens as long as they could pull their weight, their full load of work and labor in the camp. There was a young boy in this family, and he was partially disabled from birth. He could not pull a full workload. The parents were regularly separated during the day because they each had different work assignments, different laboring responsibilities. So at the end of the workday, they would always rush home back to the bunkers to check and see on the condition of their family. One evening, the father got to the smelly bunkers first, and he could not find his disabled son. What he did find, though, was his older son sobbing in a corner of the bunk room. Between his son's sobs, he learned that his disabled son was taken to the gas chambers because he couldn't pull his full load. The father asked, But son, where's your mother? The older son said, His little brother was desperately upset and was desperately clinging to his mother. And then his son said, Mother told him, Don't cry. I'll go with you and hold you close. And she did. Jesus, Jesus loves you like that. And he gave himself for you like that. He gave everything he had, we're told. He went the whole way. He held nothing back. There was nothing left in him. He did not give for you. He went to the cross to be personally exterminated and spilled the blood of God for your bad corruption and for your self-righteous corruption. And now, he goes with you always, clinging very closely to you. So brothers and sisters, here's the point of verse 20. This is what Paul is saying. The more you feel loved in the gospel, the more and more you get deeply moved by the love of God for you in Christ, the more that you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, the more that happens to us, the more you live real life. The more that happens to us, you regularly repent of your bad stuff and your good stuff. The more that happens to you, you walk in the Spirit. You bear the fruit of the Spirit because that's coming in chapters 5 and 6. The more you get it, 
the more chapters 5 and 6, which is the fruit of the gospel, which is the life impact, which is the progressive sanctification, which is the answer to the cheap grace, 5 and 6 only become true the degree to which you get God's love for you. This passage is meant to move you just like it moved Paul. Amen.